This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. I'm driving along the, today, last night, can't remember when I noticed it first, and suddenly gas prices, which were reasonably okay, they've been going up, but they were not stunningly, staggeringly higher. All of a sudden, they are all of a sudden way up, and I can't figure out what in the world is going on. They're now at a higher at the highest prices they've been since 2014. They're up 19% from a year ago. And I'm trying to look around because usually, and we'll bring in my next guest in a second here, usually when he comes on, he tells us about something that's happened in the world, some sort of geopolitical event, some sort of economic event, something that has led to the price of gas going up. I can't find that. So why are we suddenly getting gouged at the pumps? Well, Marvin Ryder is a professor at the DeGroote School of Business. He is our guy we go to all the time to get complicated economics answers explained in a way that even people like I can understand. Uh, Marvin, thanks for doing this tonight. It's my pleasure, Scott. Now, I, I know I shouldn't give this away, but I believe I got a peek at that email you sent, Luke, about the caller number. It is a little difficult tonight to win that Hutch's gift certificate because you have to be caller number pi. Yeah. As long as you're caller pi, you've got a great chance to win. Yeah, but it depends which number in pi you have to well, be. exactly. It's an irregular number, so you have to be an irregular caller. Uh, oh, well, I don't want to say we have a lot of those. We have a couple of those, but most of our callers are pretty regular. Okay. Uh, well, <laughs> that was a sentence I never thought I would say. No. Um, why is this happening? Why have I suddenly and everyone else looked at at the pumps and why are we seeing prices go through the roof? Because I can't see any obvious thing that has caused this. You've looked at the pumps the way you look at a slot machine and kind of wondered why aren't there three cherries up there. So first let's put everyone in context. What you're talking about is that this week, if you were driving by the pumps, you saw a number you hadn't seen in, in three years, a dollar twenty a liter. <clears throat> what you seemed to think was normal was sort of a dollar five, a dollar four. What the heck happened that it went up 15 cents a liter? Now, I'm going to give you an answer that the gasoline companies give. I'm not a spokesperson for them, but I'll just give you their answer, and they have two parts to the answer. Part number one is, oh, what you're seeing is our switchover from winter gas to summer gas. Now, why is that important? Well, by law, the gas we buy in the summer has some extra things added to it to reduce its volatility so that in the heat of the summer, it might not explode or be as easy to catch on fire. So it is a little more expensive to produce summer gas than winter gas. Their second answer to the equation is, well, you see, this is the time of the year that we shut down some of the refineries to do the annual maintenance that's involved. And so for the next two to three weeks, as these refineries are down, the supply of gasoline gets shrunk a little bit, the price goes up a little bit. This is just a temporary thing. Now, that's what they would tell you. I'm going to have to say I think this is a bit of a lie. What I think is actually going on is that some of the nice gasoline companies, and this, again, remember, is not that poor dealer on the corner who you patronize. Don't go in and yell at that person because they don't make that much money out of this. But the nice folks at Shell and Esso and Petro-Canada have taken advantage of this time to simply raise their profit margins. And they're saying, look, there's enough volatility. Maybe they won't notice. You know, if ra rather than raising it $0.05 cents a liter, we raised it $0.15. Cents, maybe they won't notice. And if we don't push back and say, wait a minute, you know, we demand an explanation here. This isn't good enough. Maybe they'll say something, but otherwise they're just going to see if they can get away with it. 
I want to get to all that, but just as I said I was going to update anything, I don't know if you heard Luke's scream. Uh, Mitch Marner scored a minute into the game, so the Leafs are up one nothing on Washington right now, just as a heads-up for the listeners. Uh, okay, so let's go back I, to I all... I thought his underwear was too tight. Yeah, well, that, there, yeah, that, that could be too. Uh, let's go back to a bunch of these things, because, again, you, you point out a few of the things that I've heard as well, although, you know, I... I never know whether to believe them about the ingredients and the refineries and all these kind of things. But when everybody in the oil and gas industry seems to be giving a different answer, my cynicism and skepticism goes up that you're just flailing around trying to find something that will explain away this scenario. That, that, that's my, I mean, and you seem to imply that that may be the case, that this is just, let's throw everything out there and maybe people will buy into one of our explanations. Yeah. Yeah, we'll keep trying an explanation until one works. It's kind of like United this week with the guy on the plane. You know, well, he was doing this, he was doing that. You don't like that? How about this? We were just having a bad day. Um, so there is one more explanation. And, of course, for those people who love to hate her, um, back in January, of course, the Liberals put on the carbon tax and, and went through this cap-and-trade process. We told you at the time we thought cap-and-trade was going to add somewhere between 4 and $0.06 cents a litre. If you were paying attention back in January, you may have noticed the price of gas didn't change. You know, January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, wait a minute, it's the same price we paid in December. And the reason for that was that the first set of these waivers that you have to buy, these vouchers that you have to buy, actually weren't auctioned off until March 31st. That's roughly uh, two weeks ago. And yes, that first auction was completely sold out. The government generated several billion dollars in these things. And again, the industry executives say, well, we didn't really pass on all the cap and trade back in January because we didn't buy any of the waivers. But now that we know, I can buy all of that for five cents a liter. You know, if it went from a dollar five to a dollar ten, I get that. Um, the summer gas, the shutdown, the maintenance. Yeah, that sounds about right. Five, six cents, and some of it would be temporary. But what we're at right now, I think it is simply good old-fashioned greed, and, and you're absolutely correct. No one should be crying for any of these companies. They're expanding their profit margin on these things at a time that they don't necessarily need to. Our major gasoline companies are still very profitable companies. It's like banks raising bank fees. Not really a good reason other than just good old basic greed. Is this the case, and I, I never checked this, is this the case right across the country, or is, are the prices really only rising in Ontario right now? No, there is some variation on this. Obviously, the cheapest gas in the country tends to always be in Alberta because they've got it right there, and also the taxes they put on gasoline are a little different there than other places. But we've seen this go up pretty much across the board. But specifically in Ontario, the argument has been made that, and here's another one that you've probably never heard of before, that between these big gasoline companies, the one company that seemed to be the most consumer-friendly is Esso, Imperial Oil, that it seems to be the one that sort of creates price wars, keeps prices down artificially to try to put a little pressure on the others. And it really seems like in the last week or so that Esso's uh, heart, if you will, has hardened, and they're not quite as advocating for the consumer. So if Esso's not pushing them, the other guys just keep their prices where they've always been. But this would suggest then, Marvin, that if we're not talking about something that is a political thing or that OPEC or any of these things that we've talked about before... And you've got the prices going up, and now you have Ontario, which is bringing in its carbon tax, and you've got Justin Trudeau, who is wanting to bring in, unless somebody gets very benevolent in the oil companies, this would be something we would expect that will go up and up and up, because every time now the companies have to pay more for their carbon taxes, for their carbon offsets, that's going to be passed down to the, compu- the consumer. So we should be, that, if that's correct, we should be expecting these prices to become the norm and higher. 
Yeah, so let me again split that into a couple of things. You asked about geopolitical. No, we haven't seen anything. The price of a barrel oil is running around $55 a barrel. That's what it was last month and the month before that and the month before that. Yeah, there's a little variation. It goes up 50 cents, down a dollar, up 75. But really nothing significant has happened. So that's not the explanation behind it. Now, to your question about will it go up and up, well, if it is the carbon tax that's going to do it, then that should really be a one-time thing because the companies have to adjust the way they calculate their prices. Shouldn't it be one, sorry, Marvin, shouldn't it be once a year then? Because according to Prime Minister Trudeau, it's going to be a constantly upgoing, a, a ticking up thing until it gets to a certain level. Well, I get that part of it, but that, but Justin Trudeau also said that would be for the provinces that don't already do something for carbon. So given that Ontario is already doing something, it wouldn't really affect us. Uh, at least for two or three or four years, and, and that all depends upon how Kathleen Wynne or her successor uh, continues with this cap-and-trade program. But once you put in cap-and-trade, then it's a sort of a fixed amount, and every three months they'll, be, they'll have another round of these sales, but it doesn't add on. It's just the same amount all the way through. Uh, I, think, I think really what is much more likely here is that simply, given this volatility that we see in gasoline prices, the, some of the companies are simply trying to, again, increase their profit margins and hope that you and I just don't blink. If we don't say anything, your question, will it go up some more? Sure. And part of that reason is that our good friends at OPEC have said that they're not happy at prices at $55 a barrel. That's why they were trying to cut back on their production output back in November, December. Their goal is to get gas, or excuse me, get oil prices up to $60 a barrel. So uh, I wasn't worried about that at the time because I remembered what gasoline prices were at $60. And, you know, it wasn't another nickel per liter. It really wasn't that much to worry about. But now if, they've, if the gasoline companies have decided to jack up the prices, you're right. If we were to see oil go up, uh, I'm not sure that's possible because of all that nice American fracking and some of our oil sands, what have you, coming back online. But if we were to see that, yes, we could see the prices go up again. So this is kind of the new normal. The ruling I hear, or the, the, the rumors, excuse me, that I hear, are that this price you're going to see sometimes between, say, a dollar ten and a dollar fifteen a liter. That will be pretty constant right through the summer. That's our major driving season. And hmm, I wonder. wonder yeah, coincidence. Uh, just before we go. Um, I know in the States there are rules or laws or guidelines, I don't even know what it is. I think it's rule, laws, but against collusion, companies that would collude to affect prices. Yep, do we, we have, have those in Canada? Yes, we do. So how in the world, when every, for no apparent reason, when all the companies, all the gas companies, all raise their prices essentially simultaneously without any kind of real driving force behind it that you would look at and say, this is why this happened, how do they not get busted for collusion? Right, so that's a good question, and it's been asked several times in the last 40 years, and on at least four separate occasions, the government has launched an investigation. There, and this is the fine line we walk here. Nothing stops you from raising your price if you see me raising my price. Collusion happens when I call you and tell you, and you and I actually conspire, and they can't find a smoking gun. They can't find one company calling another company or setting a pact or sending an email or sending a text to say, let's do this, it just seems to be this intuition that when one goes, they all go, whether that's up or down, because they want to take price out of the equation. They want you to come in because you want certain points programs or the, the gas stations on the left side of the road or the right side of the road or what have you. They try to take price out of the equation. 
One other thing, if, you're, if you want to get even more angry with these gas stations, is something I noticed starting a little over a year ago, was that every night around midnight, another $0.10 cents gets added to a liter of gasoline. I guess the argument is that it's expensive to have these 24-hour gas stations, so if you want the convenience of filling up at 2 in the morning, you're going to have to pay for it, or conversely, there's more risk at that time. Somebody might come in as an armed robber or, or you know, gas and go, and so they're charging more at night. But there's no good reason. The price in the tank didn't change. They didn't get a special supply of evening gas or <laughs> evening formula. Um, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And again, amazingly, like sheep being led to the slaughter. Nobody has written a letter to the editor. Nobody complains. They've changed the rules on this, and we just let them. Well, and you know where else you see that is up in the Meadowlands. As soon as Costco and their gas station shuts down for the evening, the other gas station's prices go up because they no longer have to compete. But let me go back to the collusion thing for just a second. While you, you're, of course, you're correct about the fact that no, no one has called, SO hasn't called Petro Canada or whoever and said, hey, psst, Bob, let's raise the prices together. The fact is, in every that I can think of, in every other industry, if a company raises its prices dramatically, so let's say an electronics store decides it's going to now charge $300 more for a TV, Best Buy comes out with a new ad that says, hey, our TVs are cheaper. There's competition. Why is there no competition then? Because you could then, if you're a gas station, if you are one of these gas stations and the other people, if Esso decides to raise it by 15 cents a liter, you could draw everybody in by just having yours 15 cents cheaper. Well, and this is occasionally what happens with the price war. One station says we're going to lower it. For a day or for an hour or a couple. Yeah, and then they all go. But to to your point, I understand what you're saying. They have to, basically, in this industry, they don't compete on price. They compete on the quality of the gas. You know, we've got extra nitrogen or we've got these special detergents. You can get Aeroplan points or Air Miles points or Petro points here. We've got a special, uh, you know, come into the store and get a cup of coffee and we do something for you. They'll do anything like that but they've decided they're not going to compete on price. It is, um, it is one of those things that drives you bananas because almost all of us drive and you're really helpless. You're really helpless with this. There's not, and again, we got to go, but there's not, that I know of anyway, Bob's Garage that says, hey, yeah, well, we're going to sell it for 85 cents a liter and let's just see what happens. There's the, because all, they're all corporations. And it always happens just before a long weekend. Of course, or the summer. You're absolutely right. Marvin Ryder, always appreciate it. Enjoy your long weekend. Thank you, I will. Thank you very much. That's uh, that's uh, uh, Marvin explaining why you should be outraged and uh, have a ball of hate going into your Easter weekend. Well, no, not really. But the, it is. it does drive you nuts, doesn't it? It really does drive you nuts. At least for me, it's not so much the fact that if it was OPEC or if there was some overwhelming reason, if there was a war in a certain area and you couldn't get the oil out or if there was what happened with Fort McMurray or something or... You know, if there's some reason why oil now or why natural gas would have to be more expensive, I don't like it, but I could understand it. I'm not appreciating paying more, but I could at least say, all right, I, at least I kind of get why this is happening. Here, I don't get it at all. And the second part is what I was asking Marvin about. In every other industry, if somebody raises their prices significantly, someone else sees the opportunity to be the lower-priced seller and pitches that as a, hey, come buy from us. We will save you money. You can come here and save a lot of money on what you were going to do somewhere else. Every single Best Buy, using their name again, ad basically, talks about how you're saving money. Why is it that 
oil and gas, there's the, the gas stations. They're the only place that I can think of in this entire country where there's no effort made whatsoever to compete with the other gas stations. They don't compete down. They compete up. Somebody puts their gas up to $1.20 a liter. Every other industry would say, I'm going to bring it down to $1.10 and I'm going to have more business. Here we go. They're up to $1.20. Boom, we're going up to $1.20. It's antithetical to every other thing we do business-wise in this country. Drives me nuts. Drives me absolutely nuts. And I only wish there was an alternative, though. That's the problem. I'm going to drive home tonight. I'm today, tomorrow, the next day, I'm going to have to fill up. And what do you do? You have no choice. You have no choice. If you want to have a car, you have to pay it. You are hostage. Yes, I know. I hear all of you people out there who are LRT supporters screaming, see, I told you, I told you. That's not what we're talking about today. If you want to have a car, you're going to have to pay for it and you're going to pay more. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Let me bring in our friend Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Bubba, have you booked the day off for the Leaf Stanley Cup parade yet? Easy there, big fella. Easy. (laughs) We are 11 and a half minutes in and already I'm calling it. Leafs are winning the Stanley Cup this year. I'll say this, a mighty good start and uh, the goal that... (laughs) I am being facetious. (laughs) <laughs> a really good start, though, by the boys. And again, one of the things, and this is what I like about the head coach, Mike Babcock, and certainly why he's one of the better coaches in the National Hockey League. He's taken a very mental approach to this. And the fact that, and he's looked at the reality of that Washington being the president's trophy winners for the last couple of the years, and this team, backed by Alexander Ovechkin, probably one of the generational players of our time, have never made it past the second round. And as a guy that coached the Detroit Red Wings, and at one time won the president's trophy and was knocked out in the first round, he knows what kind of pressure the Capitals are under. Yeah, they just made it 2-1, to one, by the way. So, at least they're... Um... You know, they're showing a little fight, but anyway, that was on a power play. Listen, uh, anyone probably, Bubba, who is watching the, watching the Leafs or interested in the Leafs or watching the Leafs right now. So let's talk Blue Jays for a second because, well, are you concerned about the Blue Jays at this point? You know. Because they're off to a terrible, terrible start. Well, this is a franchise worst start. I mean, and it's not just in wins and losses. It's key players all at the same time not performing. Um while the pitching has been okay uh, from some, it's like everyone is almost trying too hard right now. But the beauty of baseball is that it's such a long season. And to think that at any time, whether the Blue Jays were going to be a team that makes the playoffs or not, there's going to be times, and maybe another time this season, where they do lose you know, uh, six of seven games. So... I, hopefully they're just getting their yaws out right now, and that's the way I think you have to look at it if you're a Jays fan. Here's the problem I have with that comment that everybody says about it's just a slow start. And, and I'll tell you what, every year in spring training, we hear John Gibbons or other people talk about how this is a veteran team, they know how to get ready, they get the at-bats they need, they get the rest they need, they get the time off they need, blah, 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 blah. They, they know what they need to do to get ready for the start of the season. And for the last three years... As we've heard that, they have come out of the gate and at least several of their big veteran guys and have been terrible. 
Jose uh, uh, Bautista has been terrible in April. Russell Martin has been terrible in April. Other guys, uh, Edwin, he's not there this year, but have, were terrible in April. At what point do you look and you say, you know what, maybe saying these guys know what to do to get ready for the start of the regular season isn't accurate anymore? Because they clearly, Bubba, history is showing us, they don't know how to get ready because they come out of the gate and offensively they are awful every single year to start. But what's the one similarity in all of the players that you just named there, Scott? They're all veteran players. I understand that. And and perhaps it, it just takes them a little bit longer in terms of their bodies to get going. And you remember, too, as a veteran player, you're not playing the kind of, uh, like I say, minutes, not basketball. You're not playing the amount of, uh, of innings that a lot of players that the manager is looking at. So I think... I think that baseball managers are already equipped to think that it's a long season. So they're just not going to, and, and, and there's something about injuries as well there too, that they just are not willing to play those guys a lot to get them to peak too early. And I think that's the mentality of, of, of why you're seeing that. And let's be honest too, according to, this, to, to the statistics, the Blue Jays are the oldest team in major league. They're starters. Uh, on the uh, on the diamond and in the pitching staff at workout to be the oldest yep. team in the major leagues. And I'll give you, listen, I'll give you the, listen, John Gibbons has to do what, what, what he does with veteran guys. My point, I suppose, is more if John Gibbons is giving you the leeway and the, the rope to be able to say, do what you need to do to be ready, I better expect that I'm going to be ready. And when year after year after year I am clearly not ready, that, to me, is on the players then. If I'm Bautista, if I'm Martin, and I say for the last couple of years, my preparation has led me to have an atrocious first month of the season, maybe my preparation is not the right kind of preparation. Maybe I need to change something up. It doesn't necessarily mean I've got to play every game. It doesn't mean I need to wear myself down, but maybe something I'm doing isn't really working. See, and that's where I might disagree a little bit there, Scott. Baseball, these guys, I mean, these guys know how to hit a, bat, hit a baseball. And I, thought, I found it really interesting today that the Blue Jays spent, and you know, it's been well reported that they spent, you know, the veteran players, and many of them that you just named, spent like an extra 45 minutes in the batting cage today. Like, like this is to me something that they just need to warm up to. Like, there's not all of a sudden some tweak in their preparation uh, pre-pitch that they're going to all of a sudden get better at. Because at the end of the day, they all go back and resort to the same thing that got them to the major leagues. I just think it's a timing thing. I just think that they just need I to agree. warm up. No, I agree. But if it's a timing thing, and if you've got six weeks of spring training, or seven right. weeks in some cases, and it takes you three weeks or four weeks of the season to get up to speed on top of your seven weeks, right. I'm just saying accelerate your what you're doing in the spring so you come out of the gate not needing four weeks to get yourself up to speed. Russell Martin, I'm going to be honest, like he, he catches a great game. There's nothing wrong with his defensive game. He looks lost at the plate right now. He looks like he doesn't have a clue what he's doing up there. Jose Bautista, I don't know if Jose Bautista's age is catching up with him or if he is just way behind as well, but he looks well, we lost. We were saying that about Bautista when he was playing in the, in, in the, in the WBC and playing very well. Yes. So, that's that's where I'm mystified about this, and that's why I, I kind of don't buy it too much because he he was spectacular at the plate playing for the Dominican Republic. So so what's different? And, and, and playing against very good play, and that wasn't like that's not just junk competition. They were playing very good teams. 
So I just wonder what's different. And again, there's a few guys like this. It's not just the two of them. I mean, you're right. Every, the, the interesting thing to me is that uh, Kendris Morales, the new guy, shows up and he's the one guy who's hitting. He's the one guy who looks like, hey, I got something to prove here. And he right. showed up ready to play. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, he's had a couple of, you know, multiple hit games, but still overall, I mean, his, 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 his average really isn't all that great. It's, uh, but he's, he's had, like but he's had loud outs as well, though. Like he's also, yes. he's, he's yes. been a guy who, even when he has not got the ball onto the turf for a hit, he's hit right. the ball well. He's, he's squared up the barrel and he's, he's, he looks good out there. The other guys don't look good. They look like they are early in spring training. That's, that's my only point. It just, I, I just feel like this is something that happens all the time. I mean, look at Edwin Encarnacion right now. Okay? He's looking horrible. New team. He's, he's right now. I said, just check this up. He's five for 29. He's batting 172. I'll be honest with you. If I'm if I'm uh, the manager over there uh, in Cleveland, uh, I, I'm not concerned because I think what it means the most in the second half of the season, and of course, I mean Edwin has been well known to go off in May. He'll work it out. I, I just think we remember this is a sport, and you know it as well as anyone because you love that you love baseball. It's a sport where you fail. Two-thirds of the time. I, look, everything you've said is 100% correct. The problem for me is that it's been a, a traditional thing now. It's been a historic thing for the last two or three years that the same thing happens coming out of spring training. And so at some point you have to say, why am I a slow starter in April? And maybe the preparation that I'm doing needs to be tweaked a little bit so I'm not a slow starter. I'm not saying these guys can't hit. Of course they can hit. They're Major League Baseball players. They can hit. It's why can I not hit at the start of the year, year after year after year? And if I can't, then maybe I just need to do something different so that I'm further along in my progression. I don't know. Listen, I want to get to something else on baseball, though, because with the Jays, this slow start, the problem you have, and again, it's way too early to panic, but Boston, I, I expect, is going to be pretty good this year. With Absolutely. their pitching staff and the guys they have, they're going to be good. The Yankees, maybe. Don't really know. Uh, they've got a lot of young guys. They've got a few injuries right now. They could be pretty good or they could be very mediocre. Baltimore, another one, really not sure. But let's assume for a second that Boston is going to win the American League East. That means now you're competing for one of two wild card spots. You're going to have Houston, Texas, Detroit, Cleveland. Uh, Cleveland, I'm giving their division. Um, the Angels, maybe. There's a lot of other teams. These games that you're giving away right now are games you have to make up back in September. They, they are not losing their year right now, but boy, they are making it hard on themselves for down the road. You know what, Scott? I mean, the team that won the World Series had two uh, the last blue jay team to win the world series had multiple losing streaks of five or more this is this this is why i'm saying over 162 games it, it's only realistic to believe that at some point this what they're what's going on with the jays right now now mind you it's amplified because it's the beginning of the season but we would not be as concerned if the Jays had won one out of six games, one out of seven games, if we were in July right true now. True enough, true enough. And you know what else? We probably would be way more concerned 
if we didn't have the Leafs in the playoffs right now? Could you imagine? I mean, the Leafs have bailed out the Blue Jays in a lot of ways by taking so much of the attention off the Blue Leafs Jays and the Raptors. I mean, and the Raptors. It's a, it's a total. It's a total buffer for the Jays right now. So if if this is what's going to happen, get it out now. It, it's actually working the opposite because for the last few years, back in the fall, it's been the Jays that have covered up for the Leafs' horribleness because everyone's paying attention to the Jays. Now the Leafs are returning the favor by taking all the eyeballs off them. Couple minutes left here, so here's here's what I want to ask you about because I, I was looking at this today and I I thought this is this could be a fun exercise. The last two we're watching tonight, we're watching Austin Matthews, Mitch Marner, uh, William Nylander, and later tonight we'll see Matthew Kachuk with the Flames in their first playoff game. Last night we saw Connor McDavid in her, in his first NHL playoff game. The last two drafts have been unbelievably good drafts. I mean the the top end skill. At the, top, at the top two or three, or at least four or five of the first picks have been great. Let me give you seven names, and I'm going to tell, and you're going to, we're going to combine the two of them. You're going to tell me how you would draft this if the 2016 and 2015 drafts were one draft. Connor McDavid, Jack Eichel, Austin Matthews, Patrick Laine, Mitch Marner, William Nylander, Matthew Kachuk. They're all in the same draft. <laughs> Who goes first, first of all? Who's the first player pick? Still McDavid? It's got to be McDavid. Okay, I agree with you on McDavid. All right, so we move to number two. Who is number two then in that draft of two-year superstars? It's Austin Matthews. You're taking Austin Matthews? It's the, and I think this is what people forget. A lot of those players that you just talked about are wingers. They are, I'm not going to say a dime a dozen, but to get that guy at the center position and do what he did this year uh leads me to believe that there is a lot more room for improvement for him. You would take Austin Matthews over Jack Eichel? Because Eichel yes. did not have the players around him, and he was hurt this year, so Absolutely. he kind of gets Absolutely. buried. Hey, he was a point. I mean, he had an outstanding year. No, he did. Scott. The guy had you know a point of a point of game, missed 21 games due to the ankle injury, but he's a winger. And that's where I think you got to be able to guide that. I mean, let's the big size, the able to, the ability to win draws, and and be matched up on you know the top defenseman every single night and still succeed. I'm going with uh, yeah. I got to go with Matthews. All right, I think Eichel is a center, but okay. So we've got we got Matthews second. We got McDavid first. I uh, Austin Matthews second. Who do you take third then? Line because he's an, uh, he's another Ovechkin. He's too explosive. See, uh, Line is one of those guys. He, he clearly he has a great release. I am I am really not. No, I don't know what to do with Patrick Line because he is a great goal scorer, but he requires a great center. Now, he has one right now in Winnipeg. But Patrick Line, I'm not sure if, if he didn't, if, it, if Winnipeg did not have a real great number one center. Let's say Patrick Line had landed with the Maple Leafs. Mm-hmm. I don't know how good a player, or at least how productive a player, but Patrick Line is. And I think that's why he got the Matthews was drafted. Because of the fact that he's of course, a center. of course, and and I, but I really believe that Patrick Laine has the ability to be the next Alex Ovechkin. Uh, he has the ability to be a Brett Hall. He to me is in that mold. And guys, I mean, guys that score and have that knack of scoring, you you, you just have to. So you put him above Eichel. Uh, yes. All right. So who's fourth then? then you've, I go to Eichel. you've still got Marner, Nylander, Kachuk, and Eichel. No, then I go to Eichel. Okay, Eichel comes in fourth. See, I think that I would put Eichel ahead of Line A, uh, and I think that part of the thing here, uh, because of the injury, because of being playing in Buffalo, because they've had a weak team, I think that Eichel has been... He, yeah, he got a point a game, and he's a very good player. I think he gets overshadowed a bit. I think that he... You know, clearly he also had the misfortune 
of being the number two player drafted behind McDavid, which is oh, always absolutely. it's always going to be a loser. You're yeah. always going to be compared to the guy, and that's never going to work in always, your favor. Always, but I think he, I, 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 I think he, hey, hey, we're talking about like the top ten players in the league. You know yeah. what I mean? I, I, I top love ten that. young I, players for sure. I, I think he's an, an exceptional talent. He's one of those generational players that we will be talking about for the next decade. Absolutely. Okay, so but, your next players you've now got. So you've picked. We've combining 2015 and 2016 the best players here in the draft because they've been two banner years. You've chosen McDavid first, Matthew second, Line a third, Eichel. Fourth, you got Marner, Nylander, and Kachuk. Who Nylander? You know, for the Luke is reminding me that Nylander is 2014. So I'm combining three drafts. But really, go ahead. Uh, you know, I'm. It's funny. I, 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 for the most part, I'm a big fan of Mitch Marner. But as the season has progressed, I think that by a whisker, and this is going to be fun because these two are going to push each other for you know perhaps their entire careers throughout you know, as as the, you know as long as they play with the Maple Leafs. I think Nylander is a slightly better complete player than Rich Marner is, and I can't believe I'm saying that because I didn't think that for most of the year. But there's something about that Nylander shot. To he me. has got a world class shot, that is for sure. It, it, it reminds me, and I, I'm going way back here, and I, I, I hate putting old players. Uh, affixing them to young players, but but it reminds me a lot of of a like of a Messier and uh, a Ginla in their youth coming off the wing, and they just have this snap on their shot, and goaltenders are befuddled. And as much as I love Nylander, as a Marner, the, his ability to score, to be at the right place at the right time, he sets up players wonderfully. I think the size on Nylander is a little. I, I'm going to lean that way. So after that, then it's it's, it's Nylander and Kachuk. You know, I think Kachuk, we got to go, but I think Kachuk is one of those guys that within a year or two, I could see him climbing that ladder. I, I would have him as the seventh player pick too, but a big power forward with a mean streak who can score some goals. I, I, right. could, I could see him being a guy that you look at later and say, I would, he's not going to be one of your top two or three in that mock draft, but I could see him being up there in four or five or maybe, well, five or six, easily. He could move up a few spots. He's a guy that I would love to have on my team a couple of years from now. He, he is really, it's like, it's like uh, he watched as a young guy or a young child, it's like he watched his father. Oh, yeah. He's, like he's a carbon copy of his old man. Bubba, always appreciate it. We'll let you get back. Enjoy the Leaf game tonight. Enjoy the Jays game tonight. Enjoy the Raptors game tomorrow. Enjoy TFC when they come up. Enjoy whatever it is. There's there's no shortage of stuff. I always appreciate you dragging away for a few minutes. Thanks, and enjoy your long weekend. Pleasure. You too. Happy Easter to all you guys. That is uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Don't know if you've heard about this. There is The, the CBC has put out a mini-series. They're starting to show a miniseries. It's in honor of our 150th birthday as a country. It's called The Story of Us. I mean, honestly, it actually sounds like kind of a love story. There should be soft music and and couples walking along the street holding hands with Celine Dion music or something playing and flower petals falling from the sky. I mean, the the story of us. It sounds lovely. But it's about, it's a 10-part miniseries about the history, apparently, of the country. And, and I didn't realize this, but much of it, or most of it, was shot in and around the Hamilton area. So if, you, if you're watching and you see any kind of landmarks, I don't think that, I think they like intentionally try and hide anything new, because it's supposed to be a history of the country. But if you do, that's, you're not dreaming. It is filmed around here. But here's the problem. 
despite the fact that, according to the National Post, despite the fact that the CBC hired, get this, Luke, how many, how many historians, in order to get this right, how many historians do you think the CBC hired or referenced or got involved in the process to get Canada's history correct? Give me a guess of how many well, historians are involved. I would say that uh, a good number of historians to get it right would be probably uh, 10, but since it's the CBC, I'm going to double it and say 20. Double it again, <laughs> and then almost double that again. 75 historians were involved in this. Now, of course, it's the CBC, so you know money is no object. And I'm sure that none of these people were being doing it for volunteer purposes. They were all being paid, I'm sure, quite handsomely for their historical analysis. 75 historians invo- involved in this miniseries. 75. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, it always staggers me when you look around. We're not going to get into the whole CBC thing, but when you look around at private sector industries, CHCH, for example, I don't think CHCH has 75 staff people there anymore, and they are trying to compete. And the CBC has called in 75 historians for one miniseries. Because, as Luke says, 20 historians couldn't quite have covered this thing. Anyway. The problem is, you get all these 75 historians, they all put in their insight, that they write it, they film it, they produce it, they put it on the air, and apparently everybody in Canada now, that it's the first that it started and the early ones are out there, everybody's upset. Everybody's angry about something in this miniseries, that it doesn't show our area properly. It doesn't say something nice about us. It leaves out a piece of our history. There's this, there's that, there's the other. Everybody is angry. And I got to, let me go through some of these things. So the minute the first episode aired, Quebec, shockingly, went bananas. The people in Quebec, a number of them were very upset because Samuel de Champlain, uh, I guess, was not shown as very upscale. He was kind of dirty and kind of run down and he was, you know, a man of the mud, really. He was a guy who was earthy and didn't look. And so the, the British came along and they were all in their red coats and their hats and everything else. And there's Samuel de Champlain and he looks like he's just, you know, come out of a mud wrestling competition I mean, or something. That, I'm not that sure. That was probably the more period accurate description than the British. Although they took it. Yeah. But a number of people in Quebec says, what are they saying that the Quebec people and our, and our person, the, the man who helped to define us had bad hygiene. What are you saying? We're a bunch of poor hygiene. Pe-. So anyway, the people in Quebec are upset. Honestly, I could have predicted that they would have been upset about something or other. Let's be honest. I mean, w- when there's something going on about the country, it's not uncommon for somebody, not necessarily everybody, not the majority, but somebody in Quebec to get bent out of shape about something that has happened with the history of the country. Anyway, Nova Scotia, though, not to be left out, Nova Scotia jumped in and was upset about something that was left out, that there was some little bit that wasn't mentioned that they felt should have been put in this first one because the early days of the country, this should have been shown that we were a key part of the whole start of everything. Well, that got New Brunswick all upset. So New Brunswick, people in New Brunswick then were upset about something else. There was something else that was left out of this first episode that wasn't pointed out. And so, of course, New Brunswick not wanting to be seen as a province that was not important to the state and development of the country, they have taken up issue with what happened. Oh, and as it points out in the story about this, 
there are some native people who are particularly bent out of shape, not surprisingly, since apparently the story of Canada's history begins in this documentary with the arrival of the white people on the shores of North America. So there were no native people here before that. So, of course, they are upset about that. Anyway, and there's on and on and on. It is a complete, everyone is upset. Well, I got two two schools of thought, two places of mind on this one right now. The first one is, if you're going to have 75 historians involved in this, surely you're going to get it right. Now, the problem with that is, of course, if you are doing the 150-year history of Canada, presumably your plan is not to do a show that is going to run 150 years. You can't do everything. You can't show everything. You have to pick a narrative. So I'm assuming that these historians... Just think about the room, gathering 75 historians. I love history. I'm a big fan of history, but I got to tell you, you imagine a boardroom with 75 historians sitting around, each giving their interpretation of the history of Canada? That would truly be the most boring place on the planet at that one time. Nothing against historians. As I say, I love listening to history, but each of them trying to convince the others that their version of things is, I'm sorry, that would be, that would be rough. Anyway, 75 historians, surely they got it right, but you can't do everything. So how did we become a country where we get bent out of shape about everything? Now we've talked about this before with a lot of other things. We've talked about stuff that has happened in this country and around, and we say, wait, why are we so easily offended? This seems to me to be a perfect example. How is it that we are doing, or we've had a docu, not a documentary, a docudrama, a biopic, of our country that can't possibly cover everything because it's a hundred and fifty years long. You can't cover everything. And you have to presumably have some kind of narrative, some sort of storyline. So you can't just say, oh, and by the way, this happened. Oh, by the way, this happened. Oh, by the way, this happened. That's boring. That doesn't work. When did we become a country when every single thing has to make us bananas? And that's what's happening here. Everyone's upset. Everyone's upset. Because they're not properly or suitably or satisfactorily represented in this. You know, the funny part about this to me is whenever you get upset about something, whenever I get upset about something, now you don't always do it immediately, but when you, when you find yourself that you're angry at somebody or some organization or some whatever, one of the things that I try to step, to step back a little, now I don't always, I don't always succeed, but I try to step back and say, what was the intent here? Was the intention good? Was the intention on the other hand to insult? What was the intention? Like, look at the United Airlines thing. I don't believe that the intention of the president of United Airlines was to have his airline and its PR go swirling down the toilet. Was the intention of the security people to pull a guy off the plane, was it, were those good intentions? I don't think you can argue those were great intentions. I don't think they did it intentionally to offend, but I think that they probably looked at that and went, oh, I could see how this could go wrong. 
But if you're doing a CBC docudrama, do, the, do you think the people who are complaining about this in New Brunswick or Quebec, or I'm sure in Ontario or wherever, do you think they looked at this and went, you know what? I really believe the CBC went out of its way to try to offend us or insult us or overlook us or diminish us or whatever else. Do you think that that's really the case? The CBC is the most politically correct institution in this country. The CBC, nobody tries harder to be politically correct and to be inoffensive as the CBC. CBC, do you really believe that they set out to do a miniseries that would anger great chunks of the population? No. I don't believe that. Do you believe that? I don't believe that. So all these people who are complete, I mean who are completely bent out of shape about the fact that a, a a movie, a movie may not be 100% accurate, desperately need to consider getting a life. Desperately. This is, this is, this is like watching Breaking Bad and having an actual meth cook say, you know, they used the wrong CC beaker to, uh, no, no, first of all, there's probably not a lot of meth cooks that are going to call up <laughs> to complain publicly about accuracy, but I don't think anyone's going to look and say, you know, they use the wrong kind of glassware. It's, it's entertainment. I know it's historical entertainment, historic entertainment, but it's still entertainment. It's still a movie. Did we get, when, when they did the biopics. Remember they did, I think it was CBC, did the ones on Don Cherry. There were two. There was early, I think it was, it was yeah, it wouldn't have been CTV. It would have been CBC because, right, of course. They did an early one of him in his playing days and they did, and with Boston and they did one of his TV stuff afterwards. Do you think that every single moment, every split second in that, in those two movies were 100% historically accurate? That the, 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 the suit he was wearing at the time he said something was what he was wearing. That his house looked exactly as portrayed on TV. That the car he was driving was the right vintage and the right car. Do you think, I mean, on and on and on. Do you think that every single detail was exactly historically accurate? Of course not. That's why it's a movie. It's a movie. Even if you're doing a documentary of sorts. Many of you would have watched Breaking Bad, uh, not Breaking Bad, um, uh, Making a Murderer. Remember the one on Netflix, the 10-part series? That was a documentary. That's supposed to be accurate. Do you think when you watch that, that every single detail of the case was included? No. We had his lawyer on here last January who said, look, it was a three-month or something trial and it went on, the whole story went on for 10 years. No, of course you don't have every detail in it. You have to watch these things and realize this is not about being 100% inclusive of every fact or 1000% historically accurate. It's giving you an outline. It's giving you, but we in this country apparently are incapable, some of us anyway, of looking at something that is supposed to be something entertaining mixed with something educational and being able to look at the big picture 
and say, oh, okay, that gives me an idea of what happened, as opposed to, oh, they didn't mention the tiny town in south of New, New Brunswick that was not mentioned, that Samuel Champlain happened to walk through one day, and therefore this whole thing is a farce, and we've been offended. Come on. Maybe what should happen? I mean, I've said it before here. This to me, this to me, if we're going to have a CBC, and there's an argument to be made right there, but this to me, if we're going to have a CBC, this is the kind of thing it should be doing. It shouldn't be showing reruns of American shows. It shouldn't be doing a lot of goofy stuff. This is the kind of thing it should be doing. Stuff that you can't get anywhere else. Stuff that you can't find anywhere else. And you know what? If it's not 1,000% accurate, it's okay. We're trying to, we're teaching something here. We're giving broad strokes. We're trying not to, we're trying to wrap up 150 years of history in 10 hours or 20 hours. I'm not sure if it's 10 or 20, regardless. You'll notice that 150 years whittled down even to 20 hours. You're cutting a few things out. There's the odd fact or the odd piece of information that may be left on the cutting room floor if you're reducing 150 years down to 20 hours. Just maybe. Think of, think of the, if you've ever seen the book War and Peace, you ever seen the book War and Peace? If you were to see the book, it's probably three to four inches thick. Imagine reducing that to a tweet. Something is going to get left out. Something is going to be missed. And if you live in Canada, someone is going to be really, really, really angry about that. I just don't get it. I just don't get how we can always be so offended by everything. Get over it. It's a movie. It doesn't mean that you are worth less or that you have less value because the town that you wanted mentioned wasn't mentioned that may have had an important part of what you believe to be the history of Canada. It doesn't make you less valuable to us. It's just a movie. So go ahead and enjoy the rest of the movie and nitpick all you like and be offended all you want. If I watch it, and I may, I will watch it for entertainment and for history purposes and for a general overview of the history of this country, not as my PhD thesis that I'm going to write on the history of Samuel de Champlain and the rest of Canada's history. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.